Well, uh, last week I had an opportunity to sit down and have lunch with Ricky and we were talking and it struck me that Ricky's story would be helpful, I think, for some of us because of some of the ways in which he struggled with doubt, even as a person of faith. And I I think the, the line that stood out for me in that video is right at the beginning. He says that initially he embraced God as something of a coping mechanism in order to sort of get through some difficult times in life. But then he said this, the deeper I got to know him, the more questions I had. The deeper I got to know him, the more questions and doubts I had. And in some ways, that's a little bit counterintuitive because on some level, you might think, well, look, as you begin sort of the Christian life, you might struggle with questions and doubts, but as you go on, as you grow in faith, you know, your doubts begin to dissipate and they go on. But I think what most of us have discovered is that there is no statute of limitations on doubts, is there? And because life changes and circumstances in life changes, our questions change about life. And so many of us find ourselves asking some of the questions that Ricky asked. And I wonder how many of you can relate, how many of you have struggled with doubts and questions. Now, I I realize that for some of you, you know, maybe you came to church today because you were invited by a family member and you don't regularly go. In fact, you haven't been here since last Easter when your family invited you. And there was a time in your life when you believed, when you had faith, But the doubts came in and the questions came and it's been a very, very long time since you've believed. But I think that there's another category of us and that's not people who a long time ago kind of stepped away, but there are many of us who have actually grown in our faith and we found kind of this interesting paradox. As we grow in faith, we find ourselves in new seasons struggling with doubts. And I think one of the reasons for that, one of the reasons for that is that as things start to get more serious, you start to ask more real questions. Years ago, when I was in college, I went bungee jumping. And I can remember, you know, initially arriving at the place and being in line to do the bungee jump with some of my friends. And we're there at kind of like the ground level and you're looking up at the platform. And you and your friends, you know, we're sitting there laughing at people, watching how terrified they are and freaked out they are. It's pretty awesome. And, um, and then, uh, you know, we're, we're laughing and joking. And then all of a sudden, I got to the top. And I found myself looking over that edge and things got serious. And I started asking myself, like, haven't people died doing this? And does the harness work? And uh, is this bungee thing going to break? And uh, what if, is, am I going to bounce back up or can I hit the ground? Or You start asking new questions because things get serious. And I think there's a lot of situations in life where it's almost like the bottom falls out on us. And maybe there's new suffering, there's new challenges. Maybe for you, you just start reading the Bible afresh and you're noticing new texts you never saw before about violence and about, you just think this is so strange. Or maybe you're just an empiricist at heart and you have a real difficult time with miracles. But I wonder how many of you have struggled with doubt. You know, I think uh, for a lot of us, we have a paradigm of faith or doubt. But what I want you to see is that faith and doubt kind of go hand in hand. In other words, it's not faith or doubt, but it's faith and doubt. You know, sometimes what we do is we actually divide up the world into these different camps. We think there are people who are faithful and believing over here, and then there are people who are doubters and skeptics over here. 
And we think these two, you know, are just two different camps of people and there's a, a big dividing line between the two. But if you live life for any distance of time with Jesus, what you start to realize is that the line of faith and doubt don't run between two different categories of people. They run down the center of the heart of most of us in the room. Do you like that man, by the way? He looks just like you, doesn't he? <laughs> What's interesting is, is when you open up the pages of the Bible, you don't get a picture of doubt like you do in our own culture. You know, very often we create this hard dichotomy between the skeptic and the believer. And if you're a believer and a religious person and in church, church and religious communities can oftentimes be unsafe places to express doubts because, you know, people are going to look down on you and you feel like a failure. You don't believe like other people do. And does anybody else have the same questions you do? And then on the other hand, you know, there are the skeptics and they can act as if the only intelligent, the only intellectual position is the position of skepticism. But it's interesting because, you know, there's been studies and research done on, on, our, on our current cultural moments. And one of the things that's been pointed out by, um, by a, a very well-known philosopher and scholar whose name is Charles Taylor is, is he points out the fact that in a secular age, it's not really the case that there are these hardcore skeptics who just don't believe and a bunch of atheists and everyone's kind of moving in that direction. He says, no, he says, certainly there are people on the fringes. You do have fundamentalist believers and you have fundamentalist unbelievers. You know, you've got the new atheists on the one side and then you've got kind of like the hardcore religious fundamentalists on the other side. But Charles Taylor says that most of us find ourselves somewhere in that middle contested ground in between. In other words, if you are a person of faith, you find yourself often haunted by doubts. But then if you're a person who's a skeptic, you oftentimes find yourself haunted by faith. You find yourself haunted by that question, is there anything more than this? Jamie Smith, another philosopher, put it like this. He said, in our secular age, belief does not come easy. Faith is fraught. Belief is haunted by an inescapable sense of its contestability. We don't believe instead of doubting. We believe while doubting. We are all Thomas now. What's interesting is when you open up the Bible, you do discover that the disciples themselves were both this complex, you know, contested, you know, combination of faith as well as doubt. Uh, there's this account just after the resurrection. Jesus appears to his disciples and it says this. Now the 11 went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So who went to the mountain? The 11, the disciples, the committed ones were there. And when they saw him, they worshiped. So here's the 11 and they're worshiping. But then look what it says, but some doubted. Notice doubt becomes a subset of a community of faithful worshipers. And it was true in the first century and it's true in our day today. We are a people, a community of faithful worship and yet within our community, we can find ourselves afflicted by and, and haunted by doubts. So what I wanna do this morning is I wanna do this. There are some of you today who you are in this place where you are a believer and yet you find yourself haunted by doubts. And the story we're gonna look at of Doubting Thomas will speak to you. 
But if you are also a person who is kind of a skeptic, but you also find yourself haunted by that question, come on, there's got to be more to this than what I see. Is there something more? I think you'll find yourself addressed in this story. Now, bad news, if you are here this morning and you have never had a doubt, you just have this inassailable belief and confidence and faith, I got nothing for you. You'll just have to look at your phone today. But what we're going to do is we're going to begin by looking at the story, and then we're going to stand out and stand back and see how the story speaks to those of us who are struggling with doubt. So, of course, this is the well-known story of Doubting Thomas. Now, let me set it in its context. So, Jesus, the risen Jesus, encounters the Doubting Thomas, but that happens exactly a week after the resurrection, So the resurrection occurs, you know, on the first Easter. And of course, on that occasion, the women arrive to the tomb. It's empty. The angels say, he is not here. He is risen. Mary is confused. She encounters somebody who she thinks is a gardener in the garden just outside the tomb. It's the risen Jesus. And then Peter and John get to the tomb. They also find it empty. And then a little bit later on Easter afternoon, uh, these two disciples, an unnamed disciple and then a lady named Cleopas are walking to Jerusalem and Jesus catches up with them and just starts walking with them and talking with them and they discern him to be the risen Jesus. And no doubt, as the disciples got together in their, their kind of the upper room that night, they get together in effect for a church service and they are full of fear and excitement and wonder and confusion. And they, they're curious about what all of this means. Some have said they've seen him. Others just say, we saw the empty tomb. Some are going, what's going on? And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. And on that evening, on that first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So Jesus shows up to this room of conflicted, confused, joyful, wonderment-filled disciples, and they are overcome. But, but Thomas wasn't there. Thomas was missing. Where was Thomas? Now, incidentally, this is a good reason why you never want to miss church, <laughs> because Jesus might show up and you're going to miss him. And uh, so... Jesus shows up, Thomas isn't there, and all the disciples, of course, they run and they find Thomas that, later that night and they say, Thomas, Thomas, and look what it says, verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples came and told him, we have seen the Lord. So they go to Thomas and they say, we have seen the Lord. Now, Thomas hears this. And look at what his response is. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. It's interesting, in the Greek where it says, uh, I will never believe, that is, uh, in the Greek, it's, it's I will not not believe. It's a double negative. And in the original Greek, Uh, two negatives do not make a positive. Two negatives make a more emphatic negative. So he is saying, look, unless I see it myself, I will never believe you. Now, 
Why is Thomas so emphatic in his unbelief? Now, he had good reason, I think, to believe the disciples. He had seen Jesus perform miracles, heal the sick and cleanse the lepers and give sight to the blind. He watched him calm the stormy seas and feed the multitudes with with five loaves and two fish. And, and these disciples were reliable witnesses. They, it wasn't just that the women claimed and not just the men claimed. It was, they all said, look, we have seen him, Thomas. The tomb is empty. The Lord has been seen. Thomas, he is alive. So why is he so emphatic in his unbelief? Well, perhaps it was just his personality type. You know, uh, on the Myers-Briggs, there are sensing types and then there are intuitive types. Now, I don't know if there was the Myers-Briggs back in the first century. There probably was, and he probably took the test. And um, probably on the test, Thomas was a sensor. And an intuitive person, you know, they they just kind of feel and they sense like if you, I'm an intuitive, I'm an in on the Myers-Briggs. And I just kind of, I, I, you know, I I meet somebody, I remember when I met Justin, you know, and I'm like, this guy's going to be our youth pastor. I'm like, I'll check his references. Yeah, and I'll do my work, but he's going to be it. He's just the guy. Right, Justin? Yeah, who who, who wouldn't want to hire Justin? Um, But... But then there are the sensing types and they need empirical evidence. They need to put it under the microscope and test and see it themselves. They they need to touch and feel and see. And maybe this was Thomas. Maybe he was just an empiricist. Or maybe Thomas had a worldview problem. I mean, maybe the issue was a little bit more simple than just his personality type. Maybe quite simply, Thomas knew what most of us in this room know, and that's, and that's that dead people stay dead, right? It's not that shocking that he would have a hard time believing that. Most of us have a hard time believing that. Now, I, I know in, in our day, it is, it is very uh, common for people to act as if people in the first century were really gullible. And yes, of course, they believed in the resurrection, you know, because that was before the advent of modern science and, you know, the, the enlightenment and, and, and space travel, you know, they were gullible. But look, I'm sorry, we didn't need the enlightenment. We didn't need the scientific revolution to tell them that dead people stay dead. They knew that they had all the evidence in the world behind them. And they knew what a, what a dead Messiah meant. Dead Messiahs were failed Messiahs. And this is what Thomas no doubt believed. In fact, not one of the men, not one of the women on the first Easter morning showed up at the tomb ready for a countdown. Five, four, three, two, resurrection. You know, no, because nobody expected it. And so Thomas didn't expect it. Well, we don't know exactly the reason for Thomas's unbelief. We just know that he was emphatic about it. But what I want you to see next is how Jesus responds to the doubter. I want you to see how Jesus responds to the person who is there. He is set, I will not believe. Verse 26 says this, Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, I love this, notice Jesus's response. Jesus doesn't scold him for his doubt. Jesus doesn't make church an unsafe place to be honest about your real doubts. Instead, Jesus welcomes him. 
And look what he says. He says, put your finger here and see my hands. Do you remember what Thomas said? Unless I see his hands and put my finger in the scar, unless I reach out and touch his side, I will not believe. And Jesus says, is that what you need, Thomas? Thomas, put your finger in my hands and touch the scars and reach out your hand and touch my side. And then he says this, do not disbelieve, but believe. You know, it's interesting in in art, Thomas is often uh, pictured as actually reaching out and, and grab, you know, kind of like poking into the side of Jesus. This is a very famous artistic depiction of uh, this encounter with Thomas. But what's interesting is in our Bible, it doesn't say that Thomas actually reached out and touched Jesus. He just exclaimed, my Lord and my God. He says, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have seen and yet have not, and, and have, who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, what's fascinating about this proclamation, my Lord and my God, is that almost all of the commentators, the Bible scholars who study this, say that Thomas's proclamation here forms a bookend for the gospel of John. In the beginning was the word, is how John begins. The word was with God and the word was God. And now as you reach this point in the gospel, it reached its climactic moment. And now it is the first time on the lips of a person in the gospel of John that somebody comes to this great profession of faith, my Lord and my God. Do you see what this means? The greatest doubter is converted and becomes the greatest man of faith. Church tradition tells us that Thomas goes on and he went, traveled all the way into India and he planted a bunch of churches and he eventually died for his faith. And it's interesting to me that the label doubting Thomas is not a label that the Bible gives him. This is a label that church tradition has given him. And I wonder if it's because the church is so uncomfortable with doubters that we have labeled Thomas in a way that is false to the scripture itself. Thomas, who was the great believer, actually is, is, he becomes the man who makes this great profession of faith. And note well in, your, in the Bible, it's not in spite of his doubt, it was because of his doubt. It was because of his doubt that he had this encounter with Jesus and he's led to this great profession of faith. Now let's pause there and let's just stand back and I just want to talk to you for a minute if you find yourself struggling with doubt. Maybe you're a believer who is haunted by doubts or you are a skeptic who is haunted by belief. I just want to talk to you for a minute about what this story, this brilliant, this brilliant story teaches us about faith and doubt. And the first observation I want to make from this story is that doubt is not the enemy of faith. Doubt is not the enemy of faith if dot, dot, dot. Doubt is not the enemy of faith. Now, in the case of Thomas, doubts did not disqualify him from believing in the resurrection. Actually, his doubts led him to believe in the resurrection. Do you see that in the story? The greatest doubter becomes the greatest believer. And listen, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is unbelief. Unbelief is a willful, settled position where you say, I will not believe. It is when uh, a parent sits down with his child and says, look, um, years ago, our family watched this movie called The Sugar Movie. Everybody seen that? You should go watch it. It will scare 
the daylights out of you about sugar. It's like crack cocaine. It's like, it's bad stuff. You got to stay away from sugar. Anyway, you show your, your kids this. They're like, no, no, no. I don't want to hear anything about sugar. What, that is willful disbelief. It's saying, look, I don't want to know the truth because I don't want to change. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is unbelief. In fact, doubts don't discredit faith. Doubt is a subcategory of faith. What is doubt but a struggle to believe, you see? In fact, faith and doubt are companions on the journey. Faith and doubt are companions on the journey. It can be an expression of intellectual honesty and humility and teachability to say, look, what does this mean? And I have questions and help me. That can just be you being honest. You know, Francis Bacon, who is, of course, a great scientist, scientific-minded person, uh, he made this statement speaking about science. He said this, if a man will begin with certainties, he shall end in doubts. But if he will be content to begin with doubts, he shall end in certainties. And he was talking there about the scientific method. But I think it can also be true with faith. And here's one of the reasons why. It's because when you are expressing doubt, you are being honest before the face of God. And God can deal with a lot of stuff. But one thing that is incredibly difficult for God to deal with is your and my dishonesty. It is when we pretend to be something we're not. And these are the kind of people that Jesus had the worst things to say about in his life. It was not addressing people where they're at, but people were putting on a facade. Oswald Chambers put it like this. He said, doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong. It may be a sign that he is thinking. And for those of you who have asked questions, I just want to commend you. You're doing the right thing. You're thinking. And it's good to think. Thinking is a healthy, healthy posture. You know, um, one of the wonderful things about having teenage daughters now, and actually my daughters who are not teenagers, is they ask me good questions. I mean, incredibly difficult questions. Justin is meeting with our students doing catechism, and they're going through the, you know, great theological statements of the faith and all of this stuff. And, um, you know, the kids are asking him all kinds of crazy, difficult questions that sometimes he doesn't know the answer to. And I commend that. You know, Tim Keller put it like this. He said, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without some antibodies in it. He goes on to say, people who blithely go through life too busy or too indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. Are you tracking with me here? So doubt doubt is not an enemy of faith, but it's not an enemy of faith if, and let's talk about this if. Doubt is not an enemy of faith if, if what? If doubt is used to escape commitment, then doubt becomes a problem. You know, um, my brother, who's a pastor in Arkansas, you know, um, he, he dated his, 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 his now wife for eight years before he finally got married to her. And I can remember having different discussions with my brother. By the way, if you are dating with some, somebody and they've been dating you for eight years and they haven't popped the question yet, like you got to pin them down and say, look, fish or cut bait. Let's do this. 
But, you know, I would have a conversation with my brother. He'd be like, well, Anita is my best friend. And she ticks all the boxes. You know, she is godly and, and she's got great character and she's a beautiful woman. And I just, I love her and I want to spend the rest of my life with her. And, and uh, but I don't know. I don't, but, but what if, but what if, you know? And at some point, you know, I did, you just had to say, look, Brent, this is not a problem with Anita. This is a problem with you. You are afraid of commitment. And commitment is vulnerable and it's risky and it requires trust. And one of the reasons why we have sometimes we keep proposing more and more doubts and we just keep asking more and more questions is because we are afraid of actually committing because it requires vulnerability. We have to let go of our life. We don't want to be in charge and in control. And one of the ways you can stay in control is to be the one who's asking the questions. There was a story told of uh, Mark Twain famously, you know, he was seen reading through the Bible, you know, and he's pouring over the Bible, you know, and people knew he was a skeptic that he didn't believe. And somebody said to him, what are you doing reading the Bible? And he says, just looking for loopholes, looking for loopholes. <laughs> and sometimes that can be what we do with our doubts. We're constantly poking holes in everything. We're deconstructing everything so that we can remain the one in control. But that is not always an honest position. C.S. Lewis in his book, uh, The Abolition of Man, great little book, he has this little section where he says this. I think this is so good. He says, you cannot go on explaining away forever or you will find that you have explained away your own explanations. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. Oh, I see through that or I see through that. I keep, I, I'm smarter than you. I, that's a problem, that's a problem, that's a problem. That You see through it all. He says this. The whole point in seeing through something is to see something else through it. For example, it is good that you can see through a window, but that is only because the garden behind is opaque. There's something to see. But if you could see through everything, if everything was transparent, a wholly transparent world is invisible. And to see through everything is, to say, is the same thing as to not see. It is good to ask questions, to raise doubts, but if you're always picking apart everyone else and you're always popping everyone else's balloon, you better turn that pin around and pop your own balloon. You better start doubting your own doubts and asking why is it that, that you just keep raising questions? Are you afraid of commitment? And so number one, doubt is not a friend of faith. It can actually be, it's not an enemy of faith. It can actually be a friend as long as it's not used to escape commitment. But the second thing I want you to learn from this story is not only that doubt is not an enemy of faith, secondly, I want you to see that faith is not the opposite of reason. Anybody here remember uh, Through the Looking Glass, Alice in Wonderland? Come on. It's this great scene where the white queen is engaging in this conversation with a little Alice. And she says, let's consider your age to begin with. How old are you? I'm seven and a half exactly. You needn't say exactly, the queen remarked. I can believe without that. Now I'll give you something to believe. I'm just 101, five months in a day. I can't believe that, said Alice. Can't you, said the queen in a pitying tone. Try again. Draw a long breath. Shut your eyes, Alice laughed. There's no use trying, she said. One can't believe in possible things. I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the queen. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. 
why sometimes I believed as much as six impossible things before breakfast. You know, sometimes I'll have people say, because they, they know I'm a pastor, they'll make these kind of comments. Oh, I wish I had your faith. And they kind of look at me in a pitying tone, and I almost think that, that, that what they're saying is, I wish I could believe in possible things like you. I wish I could close my eyes to the realities of the world and believe the impossible and to hope in the hopeless, but I just can't. I'm a realist. I'm an empiricist. But listen, listen. Jesus doesn't ask Thomas to take a long breath and to close his eyes and try to believe the impossible. He doesn't look at Thomas and say, come on, Thomas, there can be miracles. Come on. When you believe that. Come on. Prince of Egypt, the best animated film of all time, second only to the Spider-Verse. Some people disagreed with that. No, Thomas, he doesn't say to Thomas, Thomas, close your eyes and just try to believe the impossible. He says, Thomas, put your finger in my hand. Thomas, use your mind. Thomas, I know what you need. Thomas, engage your whole senses. Engage your body. Reach out and touch me. Think, see. Listen, faith and doubt, or faith is not opposed to reason. In fact, it is very difficult to come to believe something if you are not convinced that it's actually true, isn't it? I mean, faith begins in the mind, but if there is nothing in Christianity that convinces you, then you're going to have a hard time believing it, right? Faith requires reason. It demands reason. You can't have a faith in things that are unreasonable. Now, you can have a faith in things that are unknowable and mysterious, I have faith in my wife, and yet there are aspects of her that are unknowable and mysterious. And I'm sure there's aspects of me that she finds unknowable and mysterious, right? But you will have a difficult time believing in things you find unreasonable. Faith has a cognitive dimension. Now, it's more than intellectual. It's more than cognitive, but it's not less than that. Now, I know that Christianity is often rejected, and maybe by some of you, on intellectual grounds. And some of you have a difficult, Christianity, a difficult time with Christianity for intellectual reasons. And if you do, I get it. I understand. I respect that. But what I want you to consider is this. Listen, skepticism doesn't make an intellectual. Skepticism doesn't make an intellectual. Study. Hard, rigorous, broad, long, reflective study makes an intellectual. But skepticism doesn't make an intellectual. And it is strange to me that here we have a subject of such consequence. And yet the subject of such consequence, this claim that in Jesus, God actually has broken into the world. He has raised Jesus from the dead, that he has birthed new creation, that he has overturned death and darkness, that love, not hate, wins, that life, not death, will have the final word, that justice and peace and beauty will one day flood creation. And this claim is of such consequence that it has transformed the world we currently inhabit. 
You know, the force that has shaped the Western world and so much of our sensibilities and so much of our values and our sense of right and wrong has been the force of Christianity. And the force that has driven Christianity has been the claim of the resurrection. This is a claim of such enormous consequence. The, the, the confession that there is a God, that things did not come from nothing, this is of such incredible consequence that it's a shame that it would be studied so little beyond popular literature and a couple podcasts and memes. You know, there's a wealth of good literature, but you'll have to look beyond blogs and the New York Times bestseller list. Listen, the Christian tradition is hands down the most intellectually rigorous religious tradition. We may not be as peaceful as the Buddhists. We may not be as public with our faith as the Muslims. We may not be as nice as the Mormons, but Christianity has an intellectually robust tradition and history. And some of the best thinkers in the history of the world have come out of this tradition. And you do yourself a disservice if you have rejected Christianity, but you've not considered, you've not grappled with its best proponents, its best arguments, because there is something there that you need to pay attention to. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am by no means saying that the way you kind of best engage with Christianity is by going into a room and reading books and studying literature and getting down all of the best arguments. Intellectual engagement is important for your growth and faith, but is insufficient. Jesus tells Thomas, reach out your hand. He's saying, engage your body. And he does that in a community of believers who are gathered together on the first day of the week, which John is intentional about this. This is like an early church service. And listen, if you wanna grow in your faith, then yes, engage your mind, ask hard questions, read good literature, study the arguments. But argumentation is insufficient. You need to engage your body in Christian practices. You know, the way I come to know my wife is not simply by uh, knowing facts about her. I have to spend time with her. You know, and the way you get to know somebody is by, is by spending time with them. Now you say, well, what are you saying, Josh? I should start to pray and start to talk to God even if I doubt his existence. Even if I struggle to believe in God, even if I, if I doubt God, I, I should talk to him and that's gonna help me. I've had people that doubted me and that didn't have faith in me, and they came to talk to me, and I think it helped them. And I think if you will engage with God, you will talk to God, you'll pray to God, you will find that that practice will actually be shaping. When you engage in the practice of like serving the poor and going out and working with the homeless and opening up your home and extending hospitality and engaging in Christian community and practicing forgiveness and letting go of bitterness, these practices are actually strengthening to your faith. And so it's not enough simply to learn about the tradition. You need to engage in the tradition following Jesus. So faith is not opposed to reason. Doubt is not an enemy to faith. But the last thing I want you to consider this morning is this, is commitment does not depend on certitude. Commitment does not depend on certitude. And we're gonna end here but it's interesting, isn't it, that Thomas, you know, at the end of this account, Jesus looks at Thomas and he, he lays out the evidence before him and then he says this, Thomas, do not remain in unbelief, but start believing. And what he's calling him to do there is an act of the will. 
He's saying, look, step up and make a decision, Thomas. Step into this. Now, listen, this is important. We're going to close in just a minute, but let me just close with this. You know, there's a story told of, uh, of an airplane that was going down. And there were three people on the airplane, and there was only two parachutes, though. And as the plane is going down, uh, the, there's a Boy Scout, and there's a pilot, and then there's the smartest man in the world, and they're debating over who is going to get these two parachutes, but they have to make a decision. And so the smartest man in the world finally just gets up and says, look, I'm the smartest man in the world, and it will be a benefit to the world if I am rescued. So he just grabs a, a pack, and he jumps out the, the door. And, um, and uh, then, then the... Uh, the captain looks over at the Boy Scout and he says, look, he says, uh, I'm a lot older than you. You're younger. You've got your whole life ahead of me. He says, why don't you take the last backpack? He says, I think, I think you, you should take it. And the Boy Scout said, look, relax, Captain. The smartest man in the world just jumped out the door with my backpack. <laughs> listen, listen, the, the, plane, the plane is going down. We all have finite existence on this world. Your life is short, and you have to make decisions now in life. And the most important decisions you will make in life do not depend on certitude. Yeah, there's some things in life you might have a pretty high degree of certitude on. I mean, I can be fairly sure that I am Josh, and I'm standing before you right now talking. But who knows? We could be in the matrix right now, right? I mean, there are some things you just, I mean, like, there, there are questions you can ask about anything. And one of your problems is for some of you, you haven't doubted and questioned and been skeptical about your own skepticism enough. But the most important decisions in life, decisions for my family, in my case, to get up and move our family from Albuquerque to Sierra Madre, we didn't have absolute certitude, and yet I changed the entire course of my family to come out here. Now, Happily, it's been a good decision. But there was by no means certainty that that would happen. Getting married, of course, nobody is certain when they get married, are they? I mean, you, you like this person, you're sure of it, but you don't need 100% certitude to have 100% commitment. In fact, the things in life that matter demand that you take a step at some point and you embrace. And listen, this is the life of faith with Jesus. Listen, I believe that God has defeated the power of sin and death and darkness in Jesus Christ. I have personally experienced the love of God in my life and it has changed me. God's grace has been so active in my life, I don't know where I would be, where my family would be, apart from the grace of God. I am so grateful to God, I, I, I believe, but I am by no means not afflicted sometimes with doubts. But listen, I have to step out and I have to live my life today and so do you. And so what, on what basis will you live your life on? And I just wanna challenge you. Some of you are in this room and man, you have been haunted kind of with faith. You even have a sense that this is true. The stuff we're talking about, it resonates in your heart. You hear about the defeat of death, love, winning, justice and peace, flooding creation. You're like, yes, I, I'm certain that that's the way it's gotta be. Surely we are not headed to just the great meltdown. We didn't come from nothing and going to nothing. There must be something more. Listen, act on that sense. 
Step into it. God has acted on your behalf and he says, come to me and trust yourself to me and you will know forgiveness and grace and love. Some of you though, maybe you're in a place right now where you're just like, look, I, you know, you're pressuring me, pastor, to make a decision. I'm not ready for that. I get that. And if you are in a place where you've got intellectual difficulties, you can't believe yet because you haven't, like it, does, it still seems incredibly, intolerably unreasonable to you. I would just challenge you. There is so much consequence. There is so much eternal consequence at stake here. It is not worth avoiding. And it's not just that there's consequence in the future. There is consequence for your life today. I bear witness that life with Jesus is good. And if you step in and you devote yourself to him and you let go, you, you let go of your doubts and your questioning, your perpetual like poking holes and everything, and you just say, I surrender, and you step into life with Jesus, you will not be left down. I think my favorite story in all the gospels is uh, after Jesus has fed the 5,000, there's this little interchange with Jesus and a bunch of, there's tons of disciples around him and tons of people around him. And he starts talking about how his body, his flesh is, is like bread to be eaten and his, his, his blood should be drinking like wine. And all around him, people are just offended by this talk. They're like, what on earth is this guy talking about? And it says, from that day forward, many decided to follow Jesus no more. And Jesus turns to his disciples. He turns away from the people walking. He says, all right. And he turns to his disciples. He says, what about you? Are you going to go away? And Peter says, Lord, where are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And I have come to know and believe that you are the Christ, the son of God. And may that be your confession this morning. If you're a person of faith, but struggling with doubt, may you see in Jesus the way, the truth and the life. Where else are you gonna go? This is the lover of your soul. This is the one who has given himself passionately for you on the cross. This is the one who has defeated death. This is the one who has plunged himself into darkness and sin and guilt to grab you and to carry you with him on his way to new creation. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we come to you now. And I just ask God on behalf of those who may be wrestling right now. They sense this moment of decision and I just pray, oh God, that you would impress on them Choose today who you will serve. And I pray, oh God, that faith would be birthed in this room this morning. And that today, Easter 2019, might be the day where some said, I will move from this place of skepticism to belief. I will follow. I will trust. I will receive. If you're here this morning and you are in that place where you feel a pressure upon you by the Holy Spirit to, to decide today, I would just invite you in this moment, in this quiet, to call out to God and to say, God, come in. I receive you. And commit yourself to him. And maybe you're here this morning and you are in a place where you're not sure what you believe still.
And I would just say, there is so much more to live for. And I would just encourage you to keep your search and to be open and to keep asking and to keep moving toward God and to ask God to reveal himself to you. And if you're here this morning and you are in a place where you have faith but you struggle with doubt, I just, God, I pray for for these now that you would give us stronger faith, that you would give us joyful faith, that you would enable us to be a people who live out of this great truth of the resurrection. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, who was handed over for our sins and who was raised for our justification. Amen.